Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. Next week, the justices will hear four cases, two of which are challenges to President Biden's potentially $400 billion student loan forgiveness program. The policy is intended to provide up to $20,000 for eligible borrowers. Six states and two borrowers who don't qualify for full relief are challenging the administration's authority to adopt such a sweeping program. But first, the Biden administration says neither the borrowers nor the states have standing. That is, they don't have the authority to challenge the policy in court. And two federal courts have agreed with the challengers so far and have paused the program while the cases work their way through the courts. But at the Biden administration's urging, the Supreme Court decided to jump in and consider the issue for itself before the lower federal courts had a chance to issue final rulings. There's a lot to unpack, so let's bring on our guest, Genevieve Bonadias-Torres. She's from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which filed an amicus brief in support of the program. So the administration adopted this policy under the 2003 Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act, also known as the HEROES Act. Can you tell us, Genevieve, how that act came about and how the Biden administration says it authorizes this loan forgiveness program? Yeah, so the act came about in the early 2000s. And what the act specifically says is that the Secretary of Education has the authority to take action in a national emergency, in this case, COVID-19, to make sure that affected borrowers are not, quote, placed in a worse position financially because of that national emergency. And this is the same interpretation of affected or impacted borrowers that the Trump administration used when they had a payment pause on uh, payments for student debt. And again, they qualified COVID-19 as a national emergency for all that have gone through it. Uh, I think it's an unprecedented example of uh, dire health and economic consequences right. that people across the country are still struggling to get out of. And so it fits very squarely within both the spirit and the letter of the law. So you mentioned that the Trump administration used this act to pause payments. Other administrations have used the act before. But this is the first time, in my understanding, that the government has used it to outright forgive debt. Um, if that's right, could you tell us how that is going to affect the court's analysis here and whether it should affect it at all? Yeah, the, the department does talk about how there have been other examples where individuals have not been expected to pay back certain loans. And so I, I I wouldn't necessarily say that it's the only circumstance uh, that it's been used in this precise way. And I similarly would underscore that this is not a unprecedented scale, that the economic effects of a long-term payment pause can have the same economic consequences mm. over time as relief. Uh, and 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 so I think that the department lays that out well in their briefs. I think that the courts will have to take those arguments very seriously. And at the end of the day, we're talking about a separation of powers issue. And we're talking about a law that very clearly grants an agency the authority to use its 
reasonable judgment as to how to effectuate the goals of the law. And the law is clear that it's it can be used <laughs> to make sure that impacted borrowers are not put in a worse place financially. And the Biden administration has abundantly supported that that is what this debt relief plan will do. So the challengers base their arguments largely on the major questions doctrine, which the the conservative controlled Supreme Court has has really bolstered in the last couple of years. I I know it's not the focus of your brief, but can you give us uh, just an explanation of what that is and why folks on your side of the case say it doesn't apply in this case? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as as you said, this was not the specific focus of our brief where we really focused on the impact on borrowers, but the department and other amicus briefs lay out in detail that the court has specified that the major question doctrine applies only when an agency claims a power that is both first, highly consequential, and second, beyond what Congress could reasonably be understood to have granted given the statutory context. And here, the HEROES Act is specifically intended to allow the secretary to respond to a crisis by modifying any of the requirements of a government benefit program that are at the heart of his expertise and existing authority. And so the debt relief plan falls comfortably within exactly the type of authority that Congress would have understood him to have when they passed the act. Uh, the, The challengers are also incorrect in describing the plan's economic and political significance. So I touched upon this before, Mm. uh, but the plan doesn't have any more impact than the across the board payment pause initiated by the Trump administration. And and of course, not one of the challengers sued during that particular pause. Hmm. So I do want to get to your amicus brief because it does really talk about an important issue of the effects on the borrowers and um, specifically on certain minority borrowers. But first, one question that keeps coming up, at least for me, is that the Biden administration has Um, taken steps to end the public health emergency, and that's set to end in May. We'll see what happens with that. Greg and I are going to chat about that a little bit later. But I wonder how does the Biden administration explain the need to continue this program despite the formal expiration of the public health emergency? So the question is, borrowers who were affected by a national crisis and The authority is granted to make sure that those borrowers are not, again, quote, placed in a worse place financially. And so the economic harms and consequences of the pandemic have not ended and they have no immediate end in sight. And so part of what this debt relief is focused on is really to make sure that borrowers can be financially able to avoid a drastic spike in defaults. So what Mm. the memo shows is that because of the ongoing suffering that stems from the pandemic, we would see borrowers across the country going into default uh, as soon as the payment pauses lifted. And default has drastic consequences. It affects the credit of millions of Americans. It blocks their ability to pay for basic necessities. It even can threaten their employment and prevent them from 
getting affordable housing. And mm. so that's what the HEROES Act is intended to prevent. And that's what the Biden administration's plan will will do. Yeah. So basically, the idea is that, you know, the like the major effects of the pandemic may be over, but there are certain consequences that are still um, being felt across the country. So your brief, Genevieve, focuses on the impacts of the program for low income borrowers, including black and Latino borrowers. And I'm wondering if you can explain how this program by the Biden administration is targeted to those borrowers, how it will help them, and sort of what the implications are if this program is struck down. Yeah, so the Biden and Harris administration relied on a memo that specifically outlined how lower income borrowers in particular were at an extremely high risk of default once the loan repayments restarted. This risk is particularly heightened for borrowers of color. And I'll specifically focus on Black and Latino borrowers in large part because that's where we have a lot of disaggregated data. And so the pandemic itself hit those groups the hardest. And so while unemployment Mm -hmm. affected Americans across the board, you had the highest unemployment rates experienced by Black and Latino communities, and particularly Black and Latino women, with about one out of five finding themselves without work. You also saw health consequences taking a disproportionate toll on those communities because of the pandemic, which further devastates their ability to earn income for their families. And those consequences uh, have have not <laughs> gone away just because we're in 2023, but have stubbornly held on. The other thing is that those consequences exacerbated a pre-existing set of disparities that existed across our country in terms of wealth gaps that caused both more financial uh, hardships for those groups and had caused them to take on more debt because when you have less of a financial safety net, Mm. (laughs) you often have to take on student debt to pay for your school. And you also, without that safety net, have less to fall back on during an economic crisis like what happened in COVID-19. This is obviously a very conservative court. And I'm curious why you think the things you said in your brief might resonate with this court. You obviously filed it thinking, you know, there's a chance that this will uh, help the Biden administration win the case. What what is it you think might, might matter? We submitted this brief because we think that it's important for the court and the public to be aware of the incredible consequences that overriding the agency's reasoning will have for people across the country and particularly people who have been the most economically marginalized across the the U.S. And we do think that the court will take that seriously. We think that they have shown that they do read the amicus briefs in these high profile cases and that it can prompt really important questions Mm -hmm. from Justice Jackson, from Justice 
Sotomayor from Justice Kagan, and that those questions do resonate and they can push the rest of the justices in a particular direction. So while we might have uh, Justice Roberts deciding something on standing grounds, that doesn't mean that the influence of his colleagues and the influence of the briefs doesn't play a role in the background. And we also have a Justice Kavanaugh who wants to portray himself as somebody who uh, cares about multiracial groups. I, I work on the cases that are defending affirmative action before the Supreme Court as well. And so we we had to ask ourselves a lot of those same questions. Mm. Uh, but we do think that there are openings on this court to make them hear that uh, people of color will be substantially affected by the outcomes of this court and that that can play an important role in the framing their ultimate decisions. I did just want to sort of talk about um, what happens if the court does rule against the Biden administration. Is that necessarily the end uh, with regard to student loan forgiveness? Or is there something that the Biden administration could and should do to kind of tackle this from a different perspective? So I, I don't have a crystal ball here and I'm not going to opine on different policy choices. What I will say is that they're going to have to uh seriously look at what the decision says. I, I think it's important to know that uh, decisions can come out multiple different ways. And so it really depends on how the court rules and the reasoning behind how they rule. And it might mean a slight adjustment or it might mean a major one. And I do think that it will be imperative that the Biden administration thinks very seriously and carefully, potentially with Congress, to address the current situation. We do need to avoid the economic crisis that will befall this country uh, following the payment pause being lifted. Let, let me focus on wh what I think uh, a lot of people think is the stronger of the two standing arguments, which is the, the argument made by the states. And I want to ask you uh, to articulate the argument against standing. They say we have standing here because this is going to cost us tax revenue. This is going to endanger our treasuries. Why is that not enough for them to sue? Yeah, so there's a couple reasons there. The first piece is that they've alleged harms on behalf of a loan servicer uh, called Mohella, which is one of Missouri's loan servicers. And that's a separate legal entity that is not chosen to sue in this case. And so it's questionable to begin with whether the states even have the right to sue on behalf of the separate entity that has very explicitly said that they don't don't want to sue. So that's kind of one problem with their standing argument. The other piece is that the harms that they're describing are extremely speculative. So they're talking about the potential harms that could happen in the future at some uh, distant time <laughs> that haven't been shown and haven't been proven and stem in large part from their own um, state tax laws, which they themselves have 
chosen to adopt. And and the courts have said that if if the harms are speculative and if the harms are so um, nebulous, that's not enough to bring a case in court. They've also said that if the reason that you're having harms is because of your own actions, such as your Mm. own state tax laws, then you can't sue somebody for that. You should be fixing what's in your scope of control. Right. So we'll just note that there's a separate argument to be made with regard to the borrowers. But um, I think to wrap up, I wanted to ask, um, as sort of Greg has suggested here, is that I think a lot of people think that this case is going to fall largely along ideological lines, at least when it comes to the authority that the Biden administration has. Um, But there might be an off-ramp for some of the justices who don't want to go that far um, in these standing arguments. And so wondering if there are particular justices that you think would find this argument the most attractive way to sort of avoid the bigger question about the administration's authority. Yeah, I think we're looking at the justices that we're usually <laughs> focused on in terms of mm-hmm. swing justices uh, in, in talking to colleagues that tends to be the Justice Roberts and the Justice Kavanaugh. It's it's always a little bit harder to predict how Justice Coney Barrett is going to rule, but I think that she will take these arguments very seriously. And th- the reason why the standing arguments could be an available off-ramp is because there have been conservative scholars who have come forward and said, we may not ideologically agree mm-hmm. with this plan, and we might not even think it's a good idea, but we do agree with the department that these groups do not have standing to bring the claim, and that finding that they do would substantially uh, disrupt current case law and open the doors to courts to such a degree that that would be of concern to the Justice Roberts and the Justice Kavanaugh's potentially. I I, I should underscore that that as civil rights plaintiffs, it's always um, a little hypocritical (laughs) in terms of how the court addresses standing questions, because for civil rights plaintiffs to get into court, it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, And we often have to come forward with a lot of strong material allegations at the pleading stage, or else we can't get to uh, the next step. And Mm -hmm. we would hope that the same standards would apply to these politicized lawsuits (laughs) being brought uh, and funded by conservative groups. Yeah, that's a good point to think about sort of how standing um, is sort of looked at a little bit differently in the different areas of the law, particularly when it comes to um, states. And there are a lot of discussion about states participating in these politically charged cases. So thank you for noting that for our listeners. And thank you for joining us. Um, Really enjoyed uh, kind of looking at this case through your perspective. Well, thanks for your focus on these questions. And uh, I, I hope you all get to listen to the argument yeah we'll be there for the nine hours of argument that uh, (laughs) seems to be the norm at supreme court these days
So, Greg, um, one of the things that I promised our listeners we'd talk about um, during our interview with Genevieve was the end of the pandemic and effects on the Supreme Court cases that the justices are hearing. So last week during our podcast, I said that the February sitting was light on cases and big on consequences. And last week, the docket got lighter on both. And that's because the court removed from its docket a challenge to an immigration-related policy known as Title 42. Greg, can you remind us what this is? Yeah, this is a case that procedurally was already kind of complicated. Now right. it's it's perhaps even more complicated. But basically, um, the, title, the Title 42 border policy is basically a, a, a policy that started in the Trump administration restricting who can come into the country for public health reasons. And the Biden administration is trying to move past that policy. And there are now multiple avenues in terms of how the administration is trying to do that. The case before the Supreme Court involved a federal district judge, Emmett Sullivan, who ruled that the original policy put in place by the Trump administration violated the Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, The Supreme Court blocked that order from taking effect. So that order was going to end the Title 42 policy. The Supreme Court blocked that order from taking effect and agreed to hear arguments as to whether some Republican-led states could intervene in defense of the, the, the original Trump policy. Clear as mud. Sounds great. So then the Biden administration, uh, in between the last time we talked about this and now, said, we're going to remove the public health emergency that was the original basis for the Trump policy. And that's going to end on May the 11th. Now, the Supreme Court, as you said, was going to hear arguments next week on the uh, the, the bid to intervene by the Republican-led states. Yes, I know you're you're twisting around, your head's <laughs> twisting around. Um, and the Supreme Court just recently scrapped those arguments, didn't dismiss the case, but said we're not going to, you know, we're going to take it off the argument calendar. And so it seems as though we're kind of in a waiting game. So the, the Biden administration has said when that order takes effect, when we remove the public health emergency on May 11th, that's going to moot the Supreme Court case. You don't even need to, to hear arguments. The states say, no, it doesn't moot it. Uh, you, you should still decide this case. There will probably be some other litigation over that effort to remove the public health emergency. The, the states have alluded in a filing in yet another case I haven't even talked about. Mm-hmm. It's now at the Fifth Circuit. They have alluded to the likelihood that they will challenge the the rescission of the public health emergency. So it's a big watch this space. For now, the Supreme Court's not going to hear our our arguments, but we will almost certainly be talking about this again in some form or another. That reminds me. um, So, again, this is a little bit of the weeds, but this sort of reminds me about last term's um, big environmental case, West Virginia versus EPA, that was like, the Obama administration had tried to do something, then the Trump administration did something else, and then the Biden administration was like, wait, wait, we're going to do something else, and then, then there was like, what's going to happen, and, and here we are. I guess all this is to say maybe we should just keep the president for like 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Not change administrations. It's too hard for the Supreme Court to work this out. It, it, it would be simpler, but so much less interesting, Kimberly. Oh, right, right. 
This week, of course, the court heard a pair of cases that could have very big implications for the future of the Internet. We talked about those in last week's episode. We will be back next week to do a deep, deep dive on what is still, even without the border case, a very interesting city. So until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news, including news about the three opinions that the justices dropped on us this week. All of that's at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C., When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show, On the Merits, and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts. <laughs>